Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Our widely accepted idea of a democratic nation state is based on the notion that the representatives that we elect create a solution at the large scale. On today's show, we think about ways to develop social solutions in a framework of an open society where problems can be solved locally while understanding a global context. Advocates of the approach used by the modern nation states work from the assumption that if only the masses would adopt their strategies, societal problems would work themselves out. Can we create a society where meaningful change comes from a symbiotic approach? The partner state model is one in which citizens, government, and business all work together in a way that promotes and benefits the positive outcomes for all. In today's show with Michelle Bowens and John Rostakis, we investigate the possibility of what a world might look like that has adopted an open model for community, economy, education, and production in which our social systems are working towards a common goal of realizing the full potential of the human species. On Extra Environmentalist number 78, we are speaking with peer-to-peer theorist Michelle Bowens and also author of Humanizing the Economy, Cooperatives in the Age of Capital, John Rostakis from Quito, Ecuador, in the radio studios of Radiolistas, who helped us record this interview. Michelle and John were both in Quito, Ecuador, to work on a project called the Flock Society, which is a broader initiative looking at how Ecuador can create a model of a post-capitalist society, looking at the ideas of creating an open knowledge commons, of taking many of the ideas of open education and open economics and actually beginning to develop a transition strategy. So it's really exciting to see a nation take the initiative to put something like this together. And Michelle and John are two of the world's leading theorists on how to make this transition actually play out and structure the vision for that society. So we're going to jump into our conversation with them today. We start out with Michelle describing the Flock Society project for a transition to a post-capitalist economic system in Ecuador. And then John Rostakis joins in after I ask about getting back to the original idea and optimism of the internet in the 90s. This is the Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz. And I'm Justin Ritchie, and this is episode number 78. The Flock Society project is a project that is funded by three institutions in Ecuador, the Ministry of Human Knowledge and Talent, the uh, Secretary of Innovation, and the IAEN, which is a public university for public servants. And Flock means free, libre, open knowledge. 
and basically we have to develop a transition framework and 10 policy documents to transition Ecuador towards a social knowledge economy or we call it also a open knowledge-based commons economy. So the general idea is to socialize knowledge, if you like, to make it available and shareable for the whole population. So we're thinking about you know, open education commons, open civic commons, open science commons, and how to actually support the development of these common pools of knowledge that can then also lead to a different type of economy. That's pretty much the, the kind of short summary of the project. And so we have about seven researchers, me included, that are working in five different streams because we have kind of an integrative, holistic vision of how this can happen. So we talk about human capacity building, changing the productive matrix, institutional innovation, open technical infrastructures, and finally, commons for collective life. So we try to look at one particular commons, for example, think about the open education commons in terms of what are the feeding mechanisms, like how do you get open courseware, open textbooks. We also look at material conditions, so for example, open source labs using non-proprietary scientific instruments, and also immaterial conditions like, for example, open certification, open accreditation, open badges, Maybe hopefully that gives you some kind of generic idea of what we are trying to do here. For our listeners who really don't really understand what an open course is, could, perhaps you could go into a little bit about what that means. All right. So basically, you know, you have the classic physical face-to-face -face institutional education. And now we have the means to expand education um, into ways that uh, more students can access them uh, virtually. Uh, and that would be, for example, uh, open educational resources, uh, you know, like you know in the United States, like Coursera and the MIT uh, Open Courseware Collection. Um, and then, of course, also open textbooks for K-12. For example, we're thinking about um, how can we have a process that allows teachers and professors in Ecuador, in cooperation with Latin America, to make their own textbooks uh, because they are extremely expensive for poor students here in Ecuador. Um, the other uh, thing I mentioned was um, open certification. So you have an increasing contradiction between, you know, institutional education with its masters and PhDs, but which is uh, slow to adapt. And then uh, you have a thriving field of informal peer-to-peer -peer learning in the hacker and design communities, for example. Um, and these people can't wait for the institutions, so they're starting with. Uh, legitimizing their knowledge in a peer-to-peer -peer way to something called open accreditation or open certification and also called open badges. They're the same thing. They're, uh, they're ways to recognize uh, you know, a certain skill or knowledge base that, w that is recognized uh, in a particular community. And what we're looking at is how to match informal and formal accreditation. So how can universities start recognizing and legitimizing this, this other type of, uh, you know, civic knowledge that is kind of grassroots and is emerging uh, pretty much everywhere. Now, I think that is the biggest hurdle that you'd have to get over there is legitimizing the kind of coursework that you're doing because as an institution, you, you bring with, like a large uh, college, you bring with it a lot of prestige, you bring professors, you bring all these kind of resources along with it. When you're working with these open courses, 
um, it feels like that would be the biggest hurdle is trying to get accreditation, trying to get people to take you seriously in a, in a way. Have you dealt with that at all? Have, how is, have you started to get over these hurdles? Well, our work is mostly policymaking, right? So we are talking to people, for example, at the grassroots, there's a Latin American open textbook initiative. And so we talk to various stakeholders, and from this kind of research, we then formulate policy proposals. So we're not really in the implementation phase yet. We're in the phase of talking to stakeholders and looking at their needs and proposals and then uh, synthesizing them so that the government and the National Assembly can propose frameworks which would enable these kind of processes. I wanted to ask about how you even start developing a vision so large like that, because so many of the major stories in the broader trends of technology at the moment seem to focus on how you know the NSA is spying on digital communications and how a lot of people, especially in the United States, I've seen a major shift in trust in how people have seen social networks and digital communications. How do you kind of reverse those trends in information technology towards invasions of privacy, towards getting back to that idea like in the late 90s where everyone was looking at the internet as a really transformative force in the world that was extremely positive? Uh, There's a a very sort of central question that we're sort of grappling with, which is what's the relationship between digital technology, sort of online sort of information systems and knowledge systems, and the social structures, sort of the political environment and the social economic environment within which these technologies are applied. And that's one of the areas that I am in particular I'm focusing on, which is what's the relationship between the kinds of uh, civic and social institutions that in a sense are the foundation, the basis for democratic governance and democratic accountability on the one hand, and the use of technologies that can further democracy and open society you know, democratic civic institutions and so on. And so uh, the question is, how do we create a political and social environment through the mobilization and strengthening of civil society and democratic civic institutions that can then apply the political pressure to reframe legislation, policy, and technology use according to a different set of values and principles away from the domination, for example, of the commercialization of knowledge and and the internet, the use of technology for surveillance purposes and control purposes towards liberating the use of technology for the advancement of democratic and civic values and social values. And the relation between those two things, technology on the one hand and its usurpation really by structures of control and surveillance on the part of the state and corporations, and the establishment of a framework that is controlled and, and directed by civic institutions and social values so that same technology can then be reappropriated for democratic and social aims as opposed to surveillance and control aims. So that's one of the areas we're sort of exploring here. And ultimately, I guess the point to be made is that unless you have a kind of civil and democratic framework that controls the use, implementation, and development of technology, we will never get away from the use of technology today as a tool for surveillance and control and commerce. So that is kind of the flip side of this project, which is not only the use of technology and open knowledge systems, but the empowerment of social, democratic, civil institutions 
that can control how that technology is used. I would like to add another aspect to this. So I'm writing a transition narrative or a transition framework in which those 10 policy papers will fit. And so one of the the things I introduced there is the issue of uh, technology regimes, because I believe that there was more than one. And I use this quadrant. Uh, It's perhaps a bit difficult to imagine when you're listening, but imagine you have a vertical axis between centralized and distributed control. And you have a horizontal axis between for-profit and for-benefit orientations. The first technology regime is the one you've been talking about, is I call it netarchical capitalism, where you have proprietary platforms that enable peer-to-peer social logics. But if you look closely at the uh, l'agencement in French, how the technology is organized, you see that you have a peer-to-peer front end where people can connect with each other eventually self-organize, and I think that's a positive thing. But the backend is entirely centralized, proprietary. You don't have control of the design. You don't have control of your personal data. And 100% of the value is realized by the owners, not by the people who create the value. Then you have another technology regime, which is distributed but for profit, and I put Bitcoin and these kind of infrastructures in there where, yes, it's peer-to-peer, But it's peer-to-peer that is organized for the market, for a profit purpose. For example, the peer-to-peer aspect of Bitcoin is only in the computers. I can have 10,000 computers and the Indian farmer has none. And so there is no equality in the generation of the currency there. And the whole, of course, the whole design of Bitcoin is is designed for the profit motive because it's a deflationary design, et cetera, et cetera. Another example would be if you look at a sharing economy, something like TaskRabbit, which helps you find people to work, to do small jobs. It's designed in such a way that the demand side can organize themselves and talk to each other. But the supply side, the workers, can't talk to each other. So it is definitely always... Technology is not neutral. There is a socio-political design that informs a technological infrastructure. So what we want to move is to move from these type of P2P infrastructures to the ones that are for benefit-oriented. For example, local resilience would be community-oriented peer-to-peer infrastructures where clearly the revival of open food networks, urban agriculture, alternative currencies, they're all informed by this kind of relocalization, but using the technology to make it possible. And finally, the one that we prefer in a way is called the global commons uh, scenario, where you have a peer-to-peer technological basis that combines global collaboration with relocalized production. And the kind of summary would be, if it's light, you do it globally. If it's heavy, you do it locally. So we use these technology regimes to to think about you know, what kind of frameworks are needed to support one type of technology rather than another. And, and of course, we are in, in favor of the more social technologies in that sense. So I just also want to introduce a, a, an optimistic note. The Internet of the 90s is not dead. You know, we have both. We have an extraordinary emergence of self-organization. We have free software. We have open hardware. We have open design. We have lots of reemergence of the cooperative form. So it's important to know that these things are happening at the same time and that we shouldn't be entirely pessimistic. So the point is, how can we sustain and promote the aspects that we favor, and which is the kind of internet of the 90s, but what it actually allows in terms of social autonomy? And then how can we diminish 
the power of you know the kinds of things that you mentioned, like the NSA surveillance. So it sounds in many ways that this project is reimagining the future of education, government, and socialization of people in general, just surrounded by all the technology that is available today. And it feels like you're talking about changing value systems as well as organizing systems and our economy and our government together. How does the idea of the nation state, you know, the country as a whole, how does this the identity that people feel surrounding where they live now, how will this evolve and will it be able to survive and will it end? Yeah, that's a good question. I tend to be a bit conservative in this area in the sense that, you know, this idea that all the old institutions will die immediately because we have networks. I personally don't think that's a realistic vision. Think about the role of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages when it was, of course, dominant, a dominant factor of the feudal economy. Then you have the Reformation and the Renaissance, but the church didn't die. You know, it's still there. So it adapted to the new situation. And I think the state forms will probably do the same. The kind of concept that we use in our work is the concept of the partner state. And the partner state, so to explain as I want to go back to how the real social knowledge economy already works, because there is a report in the US called the fair use economy, which you may know, that calculates the economic value and activity around open knowledge to be one sixth of GDP. So we're not talking about a small emergent factor here, we're talking about already something that's part and parcel of the current economy. And the peer-to-peer -peer side, the common side of this phenomena, works in a very particular way. What we see is we have the value creation done through common pools of knowledge, code, and design, right? You have the free software communities, you have open design communities, you have open hardware communities. So it's a contributory mechanism, people paid and unpaid, create the value in these common pools. We see, especially in free software, we see all these for benefit institutions that are emerging out of these communities. You know, the Mozilla Foundation, the GNOME Foundation, Pearl Foundation, Apache Foundation. And then finally, you see the entrepreneurial coalitions. You see these vibrant economies that work around it. So this is a bit the vision that we have about the society that is coming, because what we think is that this is like a seed form. So if you would go from the microeconomy to the macroeconomic vision, you have a civil society which has become productive. People are actually producing value as citizens through their contributions to these common pools. These for-benefit institutions, they are not commanding and control the process. They are enabling and empowering it, right? So for me, this is a vision of a new type of public authority. This is what we call the partner state, a state that enables and empowers social autonomy and infrastructures of cooperation. And then we have the entrepreneurial coalitions, and, and I will let John expand on this, but you know, basically let me explain the key issue here. So we have an open peer production where young people are doing this, but they're mostly thinking startups. And then we have a cooperative economy, a solidarity economy, a social economy, which is a nonprofit economy, which is anywhere from 10 to 25% of our modern economy. And for me, the tragedy, if you like, is that the open production doesn't use cooperative forms and that cooperative entities don't use open commons. And so this is something we're working on, and John is particularly working on the institutional aspect of this. I guess another way to approach this question of the role, maybe the future of nation states, is to track back somewhat and reflect a bit on the evolution of the current 
sort of paradigm for market societies, which is basically a corporatist or a market state, which has recently evolved out of a welfare state, which arose following the Second World War in, in the industrialized countries anyway. So the question for me is, what's the relationship of the state to uh, civil society? And the question of what's the relationship of the economy to the social values and the social environment and the common goods, which are fundamental in civil society, and how to address this division, the split between the field of economics and a corporate state, which basically provides support and service to an expanded power of capital, and on the other hand, those social values and the common benefits for which economies originally are supposed to serve. And so when we talk about a partner state, what we're talking about is a realignment of power relationships among the three primary sort of economic sectors in modern societies, one being the public sector, which is government and the public services it provides. The second, of course, and the most dominant is the capitalist economy, the private sector. And then a distant third is uh, the social economy or the solidarity economy. And so the partner state is a conception that basically realigns the power relationships among these three sectors such that civil society and the civic institutions of the social economy and civil society provide a directing and controlling framework for how the state operates. So whereas in the current model, the state basically is in the service of capital, in a partner state, the state becomes a partner and vehicle for the promotion of social goods and common benefit through the mobilization of civil society and the organizations that compose social economy. And so the idea of the state disappearing or becoming irrelevant is not an idea that we're exploring as much as the idea of the state as being an enabling institution for the production of social value, common benefit, and the direction of economic activities towards those ends. And for that to happen, what we need is policies and programs that recognize the value and the role of civil society in embedding economic activity towards social ends and how do we provide policies and a framework that actually develop the power and the capacities of civil society to play this partnering role with the state. Yeah, I would like to add something to that. You know, there there is already kind of a conservative right-wing version of moving towards peer-to-peer economy and you see that in the Netherlands you see that in the UK and what you see there is a kind of dismantlement of the social aspects of the state and a reinforcement of the uh, repressive apparatus of the state so people have the impression that the state is diminishing its role because it's kind of privatizing all its social duties to the private sector but of course the state is very very real in terms of police and judiciary and and all the repressive apparatus that you see emerging and which you talked about uh, for example the NSA so that's one model but the problem there is that they're destroying the very civic infrastructures that are needed to enable human cooperation you know i give you an example an article i read about the city of rotterdam you know the story was that okay if you close a swimming pool you probably find volunteers in the neighborhood that will say, okay, we take over the swimming pool because we need it for the kids. You close down the library, you'll probably find volunteers to say, okay, we want to save the library. 
But there's a limit to that. You know, after closure after closure of civic infrastructure, what you get is that the cooperative impulse gets exhausted. And so that's not what we mean. We want a public service, a public authority, which is entirely democratic, but which enables and empowers people to cooperate. You need infrastructures for that. Like the internet, it's a whole physical infrastructure. Somebody needs to put it there, right? So one of the things that we are not looking into right now, but I think is extremely important, and I, I will be working on this actually in the second semester, is the new forms of democracy. The, the liquid democracy techniques, like the ones used by the pirate parties. So we have to investigate how to get back to a model of the state, like the police in Athens, where, of course, they excluded slaves and women. But apart from that, the state was the citizenry. They had a set of techniques that allowed every cook to become a statesman, basically. So when we talk about the state, we're not talking about the state we have today. We also talk about transforming the state, right? We transform civil society through the commons. We transform the market through an ethical economy. And we transform the state towards a partner state. These three things really go together. Yeah, and I wanted to ask next about talking across ideologies in developing this narrative of an open society enabled by technological commons. Because as you were saying, there's a lot of technological movements that are very libertarian kind of anarchist on one side and then there's the more kind of Marxist or leftist kind of imaginings of how this can play out. Can you kind of describe how you both navigate those tensions between ideologies and developing this vision? Well, the, the way I see it is that this binary opposition in industrial society between equality and freedom and this basic thought that you cannot have one without repressing the other. So if you want more freedom, you need to work against equality. And if you want equality, you need to work against freedom. And I think that's a duality that we very much want to get away with. I would say the main weakness of the old left is this focus on the state as as, and kind of this notion that the state is society, right? And that the solutions are always at the level of the state. And then the libertarian notion, the anarcho-capitalist notion that everything has to be privatized. You know, I see two big dangers, and I think they're the same. One is fascism, which is the absolute state. But I see anarcho-capitalism as the absolute market. And we are, I think I speak for John in this, we are opposed to both. But otherwise, we look for commonality, right? You know, you can have a libertarian, and I may not agree with him in his ideology, but if this guy is a free software developer that is actually developing a commons, a real commons, then we have something in common that we can work for. And so I think this is what we attempt to do, is to to not be rigidly ideological, but to work with the forces in civil society that want to move in the direction of equality and freedom. I can add just a couple of thoughts to this. I think we're in the process, uh, in a sense, of reimagining what the, the state is and how it relates to civil society more broadly. The traditional divide, as Michelle was explaining, between sort of a state-centered Marxism on, on the left and a sort of a market-centered anarcho-capitalism on the right are, in a sense, I think, reflections of a kind of market-state apparatus that has run into a kind of a dead end. And one of the unfortunate products, I think, of this is 
either a return to sort of traditional and very comforting notions of of the state as you know proposed by Marxists for one group, or a rejection of the state as a reaction to its inefficiency, its ineffectiveness, its, its bureaucracy, and so on, that target of criticism from the right. And so what you have is a kind of a, a rejection wholesale of the state as a necessary evil and a retreat then into individualism, which is happening on the right. And I think what we need to be thinking about is how to realign collective purposes of governance with the need for democratic autonomy and engagement as informed citizens on the other. And this is calling into, I think, focus the idea of the partner state, the idea of using technology and using the power of open access to information and knowledge to mobilize civil society and citizens so that they, in fact, reinvent democracy in a distributed, a cooperative, civil kind of model that reinterprets its relationship with government as a relationship of equality, of partnership, and of directing governance and economic activities towards social good. And this notion of common benefit, social good, cooperation and reciprocity is, I think, at the heart of these new notions of the emerging new commons movement, the peer-to-peer movement, the reemergence of the cooperative movement, all revolve around how to reconcile individual freedom, agency, autonomy with a community and the broader common good. And this is at the heart, I think, of all of the experiments, of all of the new forms of commons and cooperation that are emerging, is to recapture this notion of the common good and recalibrate this relationship between individual autonomy and agency on the one hand and uh, relationship to community and social welfare as a common good on the other. Neither the traditional Marxist notion of a command and control economy dominated by the state on the one hand or the retreat into the market individualism by anarcho-capitalism on the other hand are able to actually address this fundamental question of common good and recalibration and a balancing of individual freedom and autonomy with community and common welfare. And that's, I think, at the heart of what we're trying to do here. Hearing you speak, I start thinking about technology as like a leveling bar, as something that puts everybody on equal footing when they have the same access to resources through technology and through the internet and through the the networks that exist and they have the same access to education. And it really begins to be about what you can produce, what is the tangible goods that you can provide to a society that has access to all the same educational resources. You know, I I think you should see the the kind of change that we're attempting here as a series of internets, basically, right? You have an internet of education where everybody can access and produce knowledge and learn. You have an internet of energy. You have distributed energy. So people are enabled and empowered at a local level through renewable energy to produce as much as they can for their own needs and share the surplus on a regional and national level. But we also think about an internet of manufacturing and think about open and distributed manufacturing. I'd like to illustrate that with an example. 70% of the population here in Ecuador are small farmers and indigenous farmers and live in rural areas. And 
they don't have access to appropriate technology. If they want to get higher productivity on the terms of the capitalist market, they need huge agribusiness machines that, that they go into debt. And so they can't really keep their preferred lifestyle as they would like to. This actually destroys their communities. And what you have on the other hand is an emergence at a global level of open agricultural machining design communities. There's farm hack in the US, the Slow Tools Project. There's a big project in France. There's open source ecology, open tech collaborative. All these initiatives are aiming and already producing a new type of machine that can be designed globally, but can be made locally. And so imagine an economic system where the knowledge is flowing on a global scale, that you can adapt it locally to local needs and conditions, download the design, and through distributed manufacturing, in other words, through micro factories, which necessitate a lot less investment, you can actually make the thing locally using a series of 3D or similar machines. So this is uh, something we are actually exploring as a pilot project in one of the regions of Ecuador, and that's part of our, it's not really policy making, but we, we need to show how these things work. And think about the enormous benefits in sustainability, because an open design community never designs for planned obsolescence, designs for a circular economy, designs for biodegradability, it's a modular approach. And in the current globalized economy, three quarters of the price of any product is actually transport. So going in that direction would have enormous benefits in terms of local resilience, more independence from global streams, and could potentially create a domestic industry in a field where it's really needed and, and it's not available to the traditional private market. When you really think about it, all of the wealth that we enjoy today for a modern standard of living relies on rocks, soil, sunlight, plants, water. Those are all abundant, yet the productive mechanism of society is what makes it scarce, artificially so. What if we can survive and thrive up to a modern standard of living and not only that, at two hours a day of work and from local resources. How would that be? The most important part of open source ecology is this idea that with a small amount of resources and a small amount of money, uh, anybody should be able to create a high standard of living for themselves um, and do it in a way that doesn't require a whole lot of time, a whole lot of money. People can actually be empowered by the technology that we're creating here. So rather than, rather than a big corporation deciding uh, what machines can do for us, we can decide how we want machines to work for us. Instead of relying on other people to make things that we need, we can make everything that we need for ourselves. 
and we can do it better than Walmart can do it. We can do it better than slave labor in China can do it. We can make the productive capacity that we need to live the lives that we want in our own backyards, and we can do it in a sustainable way. We can make machines that we can use to create material abundance for ourselves, and then we can show other people how to do it. We have 200 people get together, and if they want to put together a self-sustaining community, they don't have that many options as far as coming up with the equipment and the machines for doing that. That's, that's where the open source ecology really comes in, is the cost of building these machines is about 10% of what you could buy it for commercially. You know, if you, you take a, a full-blown John Deere tractor, it's almost impossible for anybody to go out and try and build one of those themselves. I mean, that's just a very custom machine. But if you're able to go and take, you know, just off-the-shelf engines and go down to your hardware store and buy steel and, and build it yourself, like, like the lifetime, then that, that's much more realistic. The benefits of a localized economy are that the power stays within the community, the economic wealth, instead of your money, the earnings, going all the way down the river. What if we can internalize that, keep that wealth in by having all that productive mechanism built in? You produce the same, the, the wealth stays in, you don't have to work so hard. And you can have time for your family and kids or whatever else is more important to you. There also is available canola oil with additives as, an, as a biohydraulic fluid. And that's something we can grow on the farm here with our combine and oil expression and have locally made hydraulic fluid. Combined with the local production of hydraulic motors and, and modern steam engines, you can have a total resilient infrastructure for producing power. Now you see in modern civilization, we have run away, the technology base has totally run away. Instead of our lives being more based on leisure time where we can actually do things that are most meaningful and we can improve ourselves as people and learn to get along, we're struggling on basic resource scarcities. Our technology is so complicated, it takes us so much time, so much energy to maintain it, that you're back to the dog race. We're trying to see if that's changeable. By reducing the technology to the most simple, yet sufficient, modular, Lego-like, people tech, imaginable. Fortunately, we have that ability to have machine information in the digital format, and now we have telecom, the internet, to relay that information and have anyone just copy over the files and have access to it, the model, on their computer. So open source ecology tries to capture the open source nature of development and the fact that we're connected to, um, to nature, to other people, to societal institutions, that all has to be considered if we're talking about a paradigm to make a better world. Open source was clearly the, the, the trend, the emerging trend that was so powerful. Uh, demonstrate with open source software like Linux, the Linux platform, when a sufficient number of people come together on a project, that project simply becomes better than anything else. So we're transitioning that into the hardware space. So what would happen if people actually collaborated on making open source hardware? We have lots of technology out there, but to organize the technology in such a way that it's accessible without barriers to people, that's a very significant move forward. Now it's there for the individuals to organize themselves and to really dig deeply, almost to what you would say a spiritual level in a way, to really change their attitudes and to take advantage of what is there and to move our civilization forward. I'm hopeful that humankind will arise to the occasion and seize the opportunity offered by this uh, development. 
open source ecology is really about creating the next economy, the open source economy. And what's that mean? It's an economy that optimizes not only production, which the present economy is really good at, it's effective in production, but distribution is not, not so great. And how do you do that? And that is by opening uh, so-called giving away <laughs> trade secrets for free or developing open source products for just about anything that we use. So imagine a scenario where, where now instead of corporations all competing, reinventing the wheel and so forth, a lot of competitive waste, what if everybody were to join together to make the best products, most robust products that are open source that anyone has access to producing them and therefore we can run an economy in a collaborative way as opposed to a competitive wasteful way. What did it do? Just when everything looks so dark. Man, they said we gotta accentuate the positive feeling. I need the negative and latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between. No, don't mess with Mr. In Between. You're listening to episode number 78 of The Ex-Environmentalists, and today we are discussing the vision of an open, common society with Michelle Bowens and John Rostakis. I would approach this actually from a slightly different perspective. I'm not at all convinced that technology is a leveler. Digital technology has also spawned a huge digital divide between people that have access to the technology and people that don't. So as we were saying earlier, it's very much a question of how do the social institutions actually influence and direct the use of technology, and that will ultimately determine whether it's a leveler or not. The area of interest that I've been working on with respect to restructuring uh, the productive matrix of local communities is in part connected to the question of access to technology and open sourcing of design and knowledge for application in a particular community. But I'm also very much focused on simply the social organization of the economy locally which may have nothing to do with access to technology, but has to do with existing power relationships, both political and economic and social, in specific communities. And this has to do with an inheritance and a heritage of large land holdings, of a landed aristocracy, a history of colonialism, all of which determined how economic organization and production and the social structures that actually sustain that are designed. And so... When I think about leveling questions, I think about the power of social organization through the democratic control of the means of production for farming or for you know, other kinds of production, how that can be restructured and reorganized socially such that individual people that depend on a particular agricultural system actually control it and own it through cooperative models, for example. So for me, the question of leveling has probably more to do with how social organization is structured, the degree to which individuals have access to control of the means of production, have access to control for the kinds of goods and services they consume, than it does necessarily with linking a particular community or production system to online technology. 
So both of these things, I think, are relevant. But unless we alter, fundamentally restructure and democratize economic systems and patterns of ownership, that that leveling issue will never be resolved. I'd like to add a little bit to that, because, you know, I agree with John that the technology by itself is not sufficient. You probably remember the debates about the long tail in music. Well, you know, the bad news is that once Apple iTunes and Amazon take care of the music industry, even the peer-to-peer music industry, it becomes extremely oligarchic. And the power law, you know, the 80-20 relationship is, is there. So the long tail doesn't exist in this area. But if you look to an open source music community like Jamendo in France, where they have specific measures to maintain the long tail, there it exists. And this is something that you may be aware of. You know, Bitcoin is extremely unequal. So now there is a new wave of Bitcoin forks like Aurora Coins, Cotcoin, and these people want to equally distribute the money to citizens in Iceland, in Scotland, in Spain, there's different projects like that. But the illusion there is that, you know, once you create equality, equality will be maintained. And this is just not the case. You know, you have to read, for example, a book like uh, Societies Without the State from Pierre Classic about the Amazon Indians before colonialism. They were very active institutions, if you like, and measures and, and social habits to maintain the equality and to avoid the creation of an elite so it's never enough to just say, you know, let's give everybody $10,000 and we start from zero. Because before you know it, some people make mistakes, other people accumulate resources, and that will enable them to win the next round of the competition. So you need to work at, at all levels to maintain this level of equal opportunity. And not just it's not just a one-time technical fix. This is just not possible to do it that way. And so I wanted to ask next about what this vision entails for our workplaces and how you imagine that in an open knowledge society, the process of the workplace would change into a more democratic way. What would it be like necessarily to work in an enterprise in this kind of society? And John, if you wanted to start in answering that. Right. What you're pointing towards is a kind of a, a democratized workplace. And for me, that means a number of things. It means, one, the control rights that are available to employees of a workplace to actually exercise control over the direction and the content of that workplace. I mean, there are a number of models. Uh, the, the most familiar one is a cooperative model where the enterprise, whether it's a commercial enterprise or whether it's a social enterprise, is collectively owned and democratically controlled by the members for their mutual benefit. And so the challenge here is political, it's cultural, and it's historical. There are regions where cooperatives and cooperative economies are very successful and are the dominant form. And that's been a product of political history, a different kind of relation between government and the economy. And those regions are relatively few. Examples include uh, Emilia-Romagna in the northern part of Italy, where the cooperative model is very powerful, very dominant, and very successful. Others include, you know, Mondragon in Spain, which is a cooperatively structured economy locally. But those systems have arisen out of particular historic and political confluences that made them possible. That is not usually the case. And in a place like Ecuador, which does have a large number of cooperatives, uh, the integration 
and the capacity of the cooperative system here in Ecuador to actually play the role that is played by cooperatives in other regions where there's political and regulatory and policy support for them is very different. And so it's quite easy to identify, well, how would you, uh, in a sense, cooperativize or democratize this public service or this, or this workplace or this factory? That's fairly easy to do. What's difficult is the knowledge and the habits of relationship and the kind of social connections that people have habitually. And are they then able to reconstruct a factory, run it cooperatively, and have it succeed as a business without the kind of cultural and historical foundations that make this kind of new workplace operate through these completely restructured horizontal relationships of equality and mutuality. I have to jump in there and ask you, does this change flow from culture or is this something that will be influenced by culture? I mean, can you have culture without the change or change without the culture? I mean, they're very much intertwined, I feel like. Look, I don't take culture as unchangeable and simply given. I'm simply pointing out that culture matters and that history matters and that the political environment matters. And so part of what we're trying to do, I think, here is open up spaces within which new forms of enterprise, new forms of social organization can, can emerge and can flourish. So the policy challenge is to create the kind of policies and sort of institutional frameworks that encourage, promote, advance, sustain these kinds of democratic governance models and to create a space where they can actually grow and thrive and expand. So culture is changeable, and it's in part changeable by what governments do and what organizations in civil society pressure governments to do. And over time, the economic and social habits of people can also change. But it is very much a long-term undertaking. We're talking 30, 40, 50 years for habits of enterprise and the kind of workplaces that emerge for these new models actually, I think, to take hold. And so it's not an easy undertaking, but evidence shows us very clearly that a culture can change and that the habits that people acquire in terms of how they work together, how they share services together, how they can co-produce social value together, that these things can change the attitudes of people simply by their introduction. So if we introduce a series of factories that are democratically controlled, that have access to international knowledge systems through digital technology, and can actually create an example in a particular place with particular groups of people, that can act as a positive influence, as a positive contagion in a way that informs and influences others to replicate that model, expand it, and then connect with it. So it's a question, I think, very much of not only vision and design, which we have a plenty, but of creating the policies that open up spaces within which these new models can operate. I'd like to add something. You know, if you look at the field of emerging commons-based peer production, you, you see an individual and a collective contradiction. The individual contradiction is that I want a passionate, meaningful job, and therefore I connect with these open communities where I can show and contribute my knowledge and skills. But if I want to make a living from it, I need to become a worker for a private firm. 
And so what happens is that you have an accumulation of these immaterial common pools of free software, open design, but you don't have an, an economy that goes with it. You have the old economy, the private economy, that realizes the value that is created through these commons. And this is what we need to change. So this is where the ethical economy comes in. What we need to do is that the people who produce this knowledge for the commons create their own ethical enterprise. In other words, the surplus value, if you like, should stay within the sphere of the commons and the commoners. So in that case, you would have a sphere of the commons where people contribute paid or unpaid to these common pools and create value. But you would have an economy of corporate co-ops and solidarity franchises that create value and livelihoods for the people in the commons. And I think one of the bases that I am pushing for this is the idea of a commons-based reciprocity license. And why is this important? If you look at the free software world, they have, a, in a way, a totally communistic license. You know, and I use this phrase, the more communistic the license, the more capitalistic the practice, because you allow multinationals to capture that value and create an economy around the commons. If you would have a license that says that all non-profit and corporate entities can use the common pool, and all for-profit that contribute can use the common pool, but the for-profits that do not contribute should pay for the license, then what you have potentially is a stream of value flowing from the private economy to the commons economy. So I think we should think strategically about making these changes. Because, you know, the problem is, yes, we have commons, but the accumulation of capital is entirely still happening in the field of the private economy. And as long as we don't change that, we are in a situation of codependency. So we have to move from peer production being a proto-mode of production to a full mode of production on the condition that it cares for its own self-reproduction, for the livelihoods of the people participating in this new modality of, of working. But I'm a bit more optimistic than, than John because, you know, if you look at all the figures of the maker movement, the open hardware startups, the free software, the amount of code being produced, it's growing exponentially. And this is already a new culture of work where people contribute freely their knowledge and skills to a common project. They're mutualizing their workplaces through hacker spaces, maker spaces, co-working spaces. You know, just to give you an example, I was in Barcelona a few years ago. There were two co-working spaces. I came back three years later, there were 50. I went to Vienna, there was one hacker space. I came back two, three years later. There were 15 just in Vienna and a whole rural network of hackerspaces in the whole of the country. So this is happening. So this culture is actually changing. We can see a new world of work emerging. But to make it successful, we need to work on a new form of accumulation that goes to the workers and to the, the commons. So I wanted to ask next about how you see in this vision that's being developed of the open society of dealing with our ecological and environmental challenges and any thoughts in how ideas of peer-to-peer production and more democratic society can help deal with those. My sense is that we've arrived at this environmental crisis point because of the ways in which the dominant economy is organized, because economic power is concentrated in a service of capital, and because the institutions, including governments, 
that support and extend this economic paradigm are in fact not democratic and do not serve particular groups of communities or individuals, but rather exploit those for the production of private profit, we end up with this hyper-consumption, hyper-exploitative system that is a direct consequence of really undemocratic economic systems. So for me, the only real place to begin in reversing the sort of the cliff edge of environmental catastrophe that we're approaching is to democratize economics. And in large part, the peer-to-peer movement and the emergence of this new technology can lend itself to this effort. But it is still fundamentally, I think, a political project. And the focus of this political project is regaining democratic control, if we ever had it really, of our economies. And it is only then that economics can actually serve the aims and common purposes of communities, of citizens, of regions. And ultimately, it is that democratic control exercised by citizens and by communities that will redirect economic activity away from environmentally damaging practices to practices that actually benefit communities, benefit the environment, and promote the social benefit of everybody. So it's an economics structure problem that is embedded within a political problem, which is the lack of democratic control and accountability in our economic system. I would add that for me, the key aspect of it is the relationship between the market and the commons. So in order to be competitive today, you need to maintain artificial scarcity, both materially and immaterially. So you, you design for planned obsolescence, and you don't pay for the damage you do. And that makes you competitive, because if somebody else pays the damage, then you can be cheaper than the ethical competition. And this is a really fundamental problem. In my view, if you put the design and the knowledge in the commons, and the open design communities actually design the products and services, then the first advantage is that there is no design for scarcity. The design is for inclusion, the design is for sustainability, and this can be verified in the actual practices of open hardware communities. For example, out of the 26 open source cars, they are all designed for sustainability. It's, it's part of the package. So if you have an ethical economy around those open designs, this market already works with sustainable design. So I think this is a very important aspect. The second, I think, is that when we reach the, you know, the kind of destruction, eco-destruction that we are reaching now, then we can look at history. If we look at the history of how people dealt with really systemic crises, then they did two things. For example, after the Roman Empire, the first thing you do is you mutualize knowledge to solve the crisis. And that's what we do now with open source and free software and open design. We are mutualizing knowledge to solve problems. And the second thing they did is mutualizing infrastructures, is mutualizing physical infrastructure. And that's what we're doing now with the sharing economy, with co-working spaces, hacker spaces. We're mutualizing infrastructure. So I agree with John that we need to work legally, institutionally, but it's not just 
like changing the factories, make them democratic, and then continue the current uh, economic system. That's not going to work. We need to change the fundamental relationship between the commons and the market, combined with these institutional democratization to achieve our ends. I'm wondering, how does money transform in a society like this? We have examples of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. How does a banking system react in this open society? How does it transform? Well, I think one of the fundamental problems that we face is how to finance the new economy. And it's very clear that private capital that is used to these intellectual property rents and high profit rates is not very motivated to invest in open patent-free technologies, even if they are useful to save the planet. So this is a fundamental problem. The second problem that I see is that the current way of money creation, which is based on the creation of debt money, requires infinite economic growth. You know, as you recall, in the Middle Ages, we had negative interest rate money until the 14th century, I believe, maybe longer. And the reason that was done in all traditional societies, which are, you know, static societies, is that you can have somebody hyper-exploiting other people through debt because that basically destroys the social fabric. And the answer of capitalism is, well, we know this, but we'll have infinite growth everywhere so that it's the growth that funds the debt, that pays back the debt. And as long as we have this system, we can't really get out of it. But on the other hand, you know, I, I think that what we have until now is not working enough. So on the one hand, we have local currencies, and they're very good for protecting the local economy from global disruption, but they don't scale. On the other hand, we have scalable cryptocurrencies, which you mentioned, but their design is entirely hyper-capitalistic. You know, the Gini coefficient of Bitcoin is bigger than the traditional economy. So there's more equality in Bitcoin than outside of Bitcoin. These monies are designed for the hoarding, for speculation, deflationary design, and they don't allow any democratic policymaking. There is no democracy in Bitcoin. It's all based on a hyper-individualism, individual choice. So I think we need some kind of new monetary model that combines the scalability of cryptocurrencies, but designs them socially. So perhaps with a negative interest rate, perhaps with basic income included, but we have to think about what is a commons currency, and we're not there yet. So we, we have very interesting experimentations, but I think the kind of monetary transformation that we need is not there yet. I can add to this as a couple of thoughts. There are alternative models for developing capital for investment, and the most obvious one is where the operations and the control of the pooled assets in terms of deposits are controlled by deposit holders, by the members of a credit union, who can then collectively at least in theory, <laughs> decide what is the best means for actually providing this financial service to the members in the community. And there are very large and very successful cooperative financial institutions that compete with the private banks and often outcompete them in terms of the quality of services they provide to members. So there are alternative forms of capital accumulation which are directed towards a common usage and towards 
the kinds of uses that people actually need, as opposed to the kind of speculative uses to which all the major banks leverage their capital to speculate on housing markets, real estate, subprime mortgages, and so on, all of which was made possible because there is no democratic accountability in those systems. And when you compare the operation of credit unions internationally during this period of the economic crisis, you'll see that very, very few of them actually were affected and caught up in the speculative crisis of 2008 and following because of their governance structure, because of the fact that they are democratically controlled and accountable to their members. And so they survived the crisis far better, in fact, and very few of them took on the bailouts that were absolutely fundamental for the survival of the private banks. So governance and democratic control of financial institutions is a key, I think, to conceptualizing you know, what other banking models might be developed that actually serve a common purpose as opposed to a private accumulation of wealth. So we have just two last questions for you both before we close out. And the first of those is on crisis and crisis points and transformation, because we see such severe economic crisis in so many countries around the world at the moment, and especially the crisis in Southern European countries comes to mind. And I know, John, you recently wrote a piece in the Taiyi here in Vancouver about what you're seeing in terms of the crisis in Greece and how co-ops are actually emerging there as a way to organize enterprises. Could you talk a little bit about that? and how you see the ideas of of an open society developing out of a crisis? Well, what's happening in Greece is, in terms of a response to the crisis, is interesting, but it's not unusual. What you have in the absence of other support systems, economic and social, that people are beginning to organize these kinds of services for themselves. You know, the collapse of the agricultural infrastructure and the markets in Greece has led to a realignment of relationships between, for example, farmers and consumers in the city. So you have you had a very quick emergence of spontaneous ad hoc markets where farmers would bring their produce on a particular day in a city and then consumers would come and deal with them directly without the mediation of you know agricultural firms and so on that extracted a profit for the transaction previously. And you also have the emergence of all kinds of services that are socially organized without a primary concern, for example, of of turning a profit. So uh, things like schools, uh, hospitals, clinics, nutrition programs, many of these kinds of services have been organized independently by communities through volunteers that work together to provide this service to the community because the hospitals and the schools, some of the universities, have closed down for lack of money. And so this kind of communal response where people gather together and self-organize for mutual benefit has become very widespread in Greece because there's simply no other option. People have to get health care, people have to get access to food, people have to get access to social services and so on. And if they're not provided by the state, which is not funding them, they are being created uh, autonomously by communities. So this has become, I mean, there's a very rich solidarity economy 
that has emerged in Greece that is supporting these organizations for the provision of these services. And the example I wrote about in Thessaloniki of Biome, which was basically a glue production factory, which was bankrupted and shuttered, was taken over by the workers, turned into a worker-owned enterprise. And they started then selling products, not for the international sort of ceramics market, which was what the factory was originally designed to provide for, but for household cleaning products, environmentally friendly products that are being distributed through the solidarity economy to households directly by the workers of Biome. So that kind of model has begun to really, I think, flourish in Greece, although not as many worker co-ops have been established in factories. Most of the work seems to be around the provision of social services. But very similar to what happened in Argentina following the crisis in 2001, communities organized themselves to form mutually supporting infrastructures, often cooperative, sometimes just networks or open collective systems to create these kinds of economic and social services for themselves. The problem is, how do these new models become sustainable? How can they grow? How can they link up? And how can they consolidate and institutionalize the kind of solidarity economy that they represent? In Greece, there is almost no support for the growth of these kinds of enterprises. And so that, again, becomes a political problem. How do people in Greece mobilize to force government to provide the kind of policy supports that actually support this alternative kind of economic practice as opposed to simply adhering to an austerity model that is bankrupting the country. So technology reminds us of the infinite potential of the human mind. It shows us what can be possible, what can be dreamed, and all the possibilities of the things that we can accomplish if we put our minds to a really you know, specific problem. What do you think is the potential of humanity in regards to this technology and the open societies? And just kind of wrap it all up into the potential of what humanity has. Well, my answer would be, if we look at the current system and its DNA, it's, you, know, you can express it in two simple rules. Natural resources are infinite, and human cooperation should be limited. So we have an economic system which exploits the biosphere and doesn't regenerate it, and then we have a regime of intellectual property that impedes innovation and human cooperation. And I think the new system based on the new distributed technologies that are controlled and owned by the citizens, basically turns it around. So we have an open field of human cooperation, minds working together to solve all potential problems on a global basis. And we have a relocalized production based on demand dynamics and not supply dynamics that can satisfy human needs closer to where they emerge. And I think this combination will create a stable, sustainable, but also thriving human society where all the immaterial aspects of our life, the relationships, the spirituality, the cooperation, the learning will be extraordinarily stimulated. So in that sense, I think even though we can expect things to get a lot worse, that ultimately we have a historic opportunity to transform our political economy in a sustainable way. I approach this slightly differently. The crisis, economic, social, environmental crisis that the world now is confronted with, 
is really the end product of a line of economic and political development that began 200 years ago, even earlier actually, with the rise of the industrial system and the ideas around neoliberal free market economics. And if we go back a couple of hundred years, when the industrial factory system first emerged in the Industrial Revolution in England, what we saw was a widespread reaction and resistance to this model, precisely because it undermined traditional work patterns, it undermined community, it undermined social relationships, and so on. And so you had the rise of the trade union movement, the rise of the democratic chartist movement for universal suffrage, the rise of cooperatives that basically humanize economics through a focus on social and mutual values as opposed to primarily economic ones. Now, those types and those models of resistance grew within the hothouse of industrial revolution in the late 17 and early 1800s. But now those very same dynamics have extended and covered the globe. And in consequence, what's happening is the same kind of reaction by communities and regions all over the world to try and rehumanize economics by democratizing economics and by focusing on social values and common good. And so if I were to sort of project forward, I would say that the economic and sort of global political conditions are inevitably producing global reactions and resistance to this economic paradigm of capitalism and opening up new spaces of resistance and new experimentations for localizing and democratizing economics and the emergence of the digital commons and the P2P networks are a part of this broader movement. So my sense is that the resistance and the experimentation with new models is going to grow that inevitably the limits of the current economic paradigm, both in terms of sustainability, in terms of governance models, but also sustainability environmentally, is going to come to an end. And part, I guess, of what we're doing here is trying to develop the infrastructure, the relationships, the vision, and the lifeboats, in a sense, that will sustain communities when this dominant economic model really begins to crumble. It's already beginning to crumble, and so we are witnessing this emergence of new forms of social and economic organization to survive the collapse of this structure. So I'm not entirely as optimistic as Michelle is around what the future may hold in relationship to technology, but I do know, and I witness everywhere I go, this new will to experiment to reclaim economics, to refashion community and solidarity, and to create the institutions that can actually sustain this, grow this, and replace this bankrupt model that's bringing us to the edge today. So resistance is growing, and at a global level, the emergence of the digital technologies is making possible an unprecedented level of cooperation, knowledge sharing, solidarity among groups across every corner of the globe, which now enables us to scale up and imagine a kind of globalized, cooperativized, democratized economic system that is made more possible by the emergence of the new technology. So I'm hopeful in that respect, but not, I think, before a real crisis emerges within the current paradigm.
And that closes out our conversation with Michelle Balance and John Rostakis. Just another huge thanks to the Radio Lista studio in Quito, Ecuador for giving us a space to record with Michelle and John. So that way it sounds like they are sitting in studio with us. And also I've got to say this episode really highlights the work of Kevin, our editor, who painstakingly took the individual audio files from the studio recorded there in South America and pieced them together into the absolutely fantastic audio interview that you heard today. And so the kind of quality that we're able to offer is because people like Kevin are putting time into polishing every single aspect of these interviews and upholding it to the highest quality. He sent me an email and said that this one took over 3,000 edits to piece together, but it really shows in the way that it all flows together and creates a smooth conversation. And while we're thanking everyone who helped to make this episode possible, a huge thanks to our listener Stacco of Guerrilla Translation for helping to handle the logistics on setting this interview up. But thanks to Kevin's work and thanks to the recording on Radio Lista's side, we were able to put together something that I hope really expressed the ideas behind a transition towards an open common society. And in discussing that, it really takes me back to the kinds of themes and ideas that drive our interest in continually producing podcasts and producing the show, which is a different form of media for a different type of society. To think about these ideas of scale and bigness and what it means for our work and our lives, I was going back to really those early days in the creation of our system back in the 50s and looking at what was going on with media at the time. And so I found a series of interviews called The Mike Wallace Interview. And it blew me away when I found this series because we're talking about broadcast television, you know, ABC prime time, where a 30 minute show consists of talking about hard hitting, deep ideas about how we structure society. I mean, Seth, can you imagine tuning in to primetime television and seeing the most important philosophers of the day discussing ideas for 30 minutes without, you know, fancy graphics and crazy sound effects? That sounds a little bit like the extra environmentalist, Justin. <laughs> well, no, it's about <laughs> half the length of the extra environmentalist. If it was the extra environmentalist, it'd be two hours. There wasn't reality television shows back in the 50s and 60s. There was real hard-hitting anchors who asked meaningful questions, who chain-smoked cigarettes like it was their job, <laughs> and probably got cancer at the ripe old age of 55. But, you know, this stuff is not new. The stuff we're talking about now is anything but new. This is stuff that's been hammered out, talked about, and then kind of pushed to the side as other big ideas have moved in, taken their places. This is stuff that's been around with us and it's been in the collective culture mindset for a long time, but has kind of moved away from the, the spotlight so much. Yeah. And I don't want to idealize what was happening in the late fifties because probably literally right before the Mike Wallace interview aired, it was like, leave it to Beaver or Bewitched or something. And so, you know, there is all of the same kinds of like mass media entertainment that we have now, but I was just kind of blown away that this kind of show could exist in a large scale broadcast format. And so I wanted to play about 10 or 15 minutes of an interview with Eric Fromm in 
discussing a lot of the same themes that we did today. So it's interesting to kind of reflect on those themes in the context of the time back then. And so let's jump into a little bit of, of that Eric Fromm interview that I've edited down just to cover the themes that we've, we've been playing on the show. Because in our enthusiasm to dominate nature and to produce more material good, goods, we have transformed means into ends. We wanted to produce more in the 19th century and the 20th century in order to give man the possibility for a more dignified human life. But actually what has happened is that production and consumption have become means, have ceased to be means and have become ends. And we are production crazy and consumption crazy. Well, I would like to get your views with that as a background. I'd like to get your views as a psychoanalyst on specific instances, on what is happening to us as individuals. For instance, what would you say is happening to man, American man, in relationship to his work? I think uh, his work is to a large extent meaningless because he is not related to it. He is increasingly part of a big machinery, social machinery, governed by a big bureaucracy. And I think American man unconsciously hates his work very often because he feels trapped by it, uh, imprisoned by it, because he feels that he's spending most of his energy for something which has no meaning in itself. By meaning in itself, he he uses his work to make a living, certainly yes. that is dignified, sensible, and necessary. Yes, uh, but that is not quite enough to make one happy if one spends eight hours a day in something which in itself has no meaning and interest except that one gains money from it. Well, by meaning and interest in work, uh, maybe I'm pressing this unnecessarily hard. What specifically do you mean when a man works at a factory with a monkey wrench, let us say? What meaning, what, what deeper meaning are you looking for? Well, there is a creative pleasure which, for instance, the artisan in the Middle Ages or in a country like Mexico still to do has, namely the pleasure of creating something. Now, you find quite a few skilled workers who still have that pleasure, uh, maybe in a steel mill, maybe a worker who uh, works with a complicated machine. He has a sense that he's creating something. But if you take a salesman who sells a useless commodity, he feels like a fraud and he hates his commodity like something. Mm -hmm. But you say a useless commodity if he sells toothbrushes or automobiles, well, television Well, useless is a relative term. For instance, if in order to make his quota, he has to uh, make people buy things of which he knows they shouldn't buy them, then indeed, in terms of the needs of these people, they are useless, even if in themselves they are all right. We talk one thing and we feel and act another thing. How do you mean? I mean, we talk about equality, about happiness, about freedom, and about the spiritual values of religion and about God. And in our daily life, we act on principles which are different and partly contradictory. All right, if I may ask you now to define. You mentioned equality, <clears throat> happiness, and freedom. Well, I'll try. Uh, by equality, one once understood the equality in the very same sense in which the Bible speaks of equality, that we are all equal in as much as we are created in the image of God. Or if I don't use theolo theological language, 
that we are all equal in the sense that no man must mean must be <coughs> the means for the purposes of another man but each individual is an end in himself today we talk a lot about equality but i think what most people mean by it is sameness that everybody is the same and they are afraid if they are not the same they are not equal and happiness well happiness is a very proud word of our whole cultural heritage i think if you ask what people really mean by happiness today it is the experience of unlimited consumption the kind of thing uh, mr huxley has described in the brave new world mm -hmm. i think if you would ask people what their concept of heaven is and if they were honest they would say it's a kind of big department store with new things every week and enough money to buy everything new happiness today i think is for most people uh, the satisfaction of the eternal suckling to drink in more this that or the other and what should happiness be happiness should be uh, something which results from the creative genuine intense relatedness awareness responsiveness to everything in life to man to nature happiness does not exclude sadness if a person responds to life he's sometimes happy and sometimes sad what matters is he responds and the third was a democracy or freedom well uh, it's uh, all these words uh, words are used now uh, rather indiscriminately i would say democracy once meant uh, organization of society in the state in which the individual citizen is feels responsible and acts responsibly and participates in decision making i think what democracy means today in reality is to a large extent manipulated consent not forced consent manipulated consent and manipulated more and more with the help of madison avenue well now now that we have stated the indictment tell me how did we get this way what happened to us where did we get off the track, Dr. Frum? I think we got off the track, as many societies do, who follow successfully one aim and yet are not capable of seeing at what point the pursuit of this aim prevents them from following a more total aim. That is to say, they get into a blind alley. I think, to be specific, we got off the track when we concentrated more and more on production of things. Thereby, we created a split between intellect and emotion. Because in order to produce a modern technique, you have to use intellect. And we have created men who are very brilliant, who are very clever, but our emotional life has become impoverished. Are you talking about capitalism? Is that yes, I talk about capitalism, I talk about the industrial system as it has been created since 100, 200 years. Yeah. Well now, uh, would you suggest another system well, which would better fortify man, which would better understand and help man to realize himself? Yes, indeed. I am a socialist. And uh, however, I have to add that what I understand by socialism is exactly the opposite of what uh, many people or most people today mean by socialism. I, I understand by socialism society 
in which the aim of production is not profit, but the use, in which the individual citizen participates responsibly in his work and in the whole social organization, and in which he is not a means who is employed by capital. But he's going to be employed by the state, is he not, Dr. Franz? Yes. Are you not putting the individual in socialism at the disposal of the state? Doesn't well, it devalue <clears throat> the individual? Well, uh, we must clarify one thing. Socialism, if the Russians claim they have socialism, this is just, I would say, a lie. They have no socialism at all. They have what I would call a state capitalism. Their system is the most um, reactionary, conservative system anywhere in Europe today, or in America for that matter. <coughs> and actually, the ownership of uh, uh, industry by the state, that is not socialism. Actually, if you take a uh, uh, nationalized British industry, it is not different from Ford and General Motors as far as the realistic situation of the work in the factory. Well, then what is socialism? If, if that is not socialism, what is? Well, I would say it is, uh, to be quite specific, uh, I see socialism in the direction of management of enterprise by all who work in the enterprise. I would consider a socialism a mixture of the minimum of centralization necessary for a modern industrial state and a maximum of decentralization. Uh, I would have to say this, Mr. Wallace, we are terribly imaginative as far technique and science is concerned. As far changes in social arrangements are concerned, we lack utterly in imagination. Uh, if we would... But Dr. Fromm, I, I, I keep thinking as you talk, we have been told that we, by, by certain persons that we have a creeping socialism now going on in the United States, and certainly it is a more socialistic country today than it was, let's say, 20 or 25 years ago. And yet, you yourself complain about bureaucracy. You yourself complain that, that the individual is losing his way in this state in which we live. And at the same time, you call for more socialism. Aren't you just adding poison to the poison that is already being injected into our systems, if indeed socialism be poison? Uh, yes, but what is, by, for me, socialism is exactly the opposite of a bureaucratically managed culture. We talk a great deal about Russia today, and I'm afraid that in 20 years, we and Russia will be more similar than different. Why? Because what is common to both societies is a development into a managed mass society with big bureaucracies, managing people. The Russians do it by force. We do it by persuasion. What we have in common is a mass man, a mass bureaucracy, and a manipulation of everyone to act smoothly, but with the illusion that he follows his own decisions and opinions. Yeah, and, and hmm. so that was Eric Fromm speaking from 1958, and at the end there, they were talking about the reflection of U.S. society against Russia, which when you watch media from that time, there was so much focus on what is the USSR doing and how are we stacking up against Russia and how are we competing? And so a lot of the social conversation was framed in that way. But I thought it was really interesting where there at the end of the conversation, Eric Fromm was saying, you know, in the future, we're actually going to end up more like Russia and Russia will end up more like us. 
because we're both these mass scale societies. And even though our systems of ownership are basically slightly different in the grand scheme of things and what that means for the worker, we're really ending up exactly the same. And really, isn't that the exact same argument that Dimitri Orlov has made on our show about, you know, reinventing collapse and how people lost their faith in their jobs and their emotional connection to their jobs when the Soviet Union was collapsing? And I see the same thing happening in our, you know, quote unquote, free market societies, our capitalist societies now, where people are reaching that same emotional point. It's interesting to listen to this talk that was about 50 years ago, 60 years ago, when they're talking about many of the same things that we're talking about now, how happiness is a full department store full of goods that you can just go in and buy and buy and buy. Acquisition of goods is something that people are striving for back in the day. Even the word socialist, even that word, which is such a buzzword, which brings up so much emotions in people, is not really what the definition is that we think of. It's more of a taking care of people. It's more of a like the open societies conversations that we had today on the show. It's a, a model of thinking that is not about individual. It's more about the collective human society that you're in. It's interesting that Mike Wallace brings up that individualistic perspective because it's so very American to do that. You know, every time you have a conversation with somebody who's not from the United States and you, you say, oh, well, what about the individual? People kind of look at you and like, oh, what do you what do you mean? We, we think think about the, the society, man. Think about the whole pie, not just the one slice. You are just one tiny piece of that pie. And it's not very popular to think about that. You know, you can't say that in the United States. In most other places in the world, when you say, what about the individual? People kind of look at you funny and like, well... That's not really the most important thing here. I just find that whole interview very fascinating. And there was a a very large portion of it about the individual experience in society, because what you just brought up, Seth, is something that Mike Wallace pushes further and further. And the whole thing is about 30 minutes. So we'll put a link in the show notes and I recommend checking it out. But that takes us to one last very short clip that I wanted to play from that same show with Aldous Huxley. It was an interview with Aldous Huxley and Eric Fromm actually referenced Aldous Huxley in that interview. But here's just a a few clips about what Aldous Huxley says he's concerned of in terms of the devices that we're developing, the technological devices that are limiting uh, human freedom. There are a number of technological devices which anybody who wishes to use can use to accelerate this process of going away from freedom, of imposing control. What are these forces and these devices, Mr. The force of what may be called over-organization. As technology becomes more and more complicated, it becomes necessary to have more and more elaborate organizations, more hierarchical organizations. And incidentally, the advance of uh, technology has been accompanied by an advance in the science of organization. It's now possible to make organizations on a larger scale than was ever possible before. And so that you have more and more people living their lives out as subordinates in these hierarchical systems controlled by bureaucracies, either the bureaucracies of big business or the bureaucracies of big government. Mm -hmm. Mm Now, the devices that you were talking about, are there specific devices or uh, uh, methods of communication which diminish our freedoms in addition to overpopulation and overorganization? We mustn't be caught by surprise by our own advancing technology. This has happened again and again in history. Technology has advanced and this changes social conditions. And suddenly people have found themselves in a situation which they didn't foresee and doing all sorts of things they didn't really want to do. Well, now, what do you mean? Do you mean that we, 
We develop our television, but we don't know how to use it correctly. Is that the point that you're making? Well, at present, the television, I think, is being used uh, quite harmlessly. It's being used, I think, uh, I would feel it's being used too much to distract everybody all the time. But, I mean, imagine, which must be the situation in all communist countries, where the television, where it exists, is always saying the same thing the whole time, is always driving along. It's not creating a wide front of distraction, it's creating a one-pointed uh, drumming in of a single idea all the time. It's obviously an immensely powerful instrument. As we develop large institutions, both sides of the coin seem to develop at the same time. You develop this large government, and at the same time, you're developing this large business side that kind of competes and tries to offset it. In a perfect world, these two kind of powers might help to offset each other. And people are caught in the middle of these two huge monolithic powers, but they're so opposed to each other, or at least so at odds with each other, that they can sort of balance each other out, and citizens can make their way. But I think sometimes, and especially in the society that we are now, they get in league with each other. And when you have both of these humongous institutions kind of working together, they oftentimes will forget about the citizens in the middle and that people often get a raw deal in this case. And we see that a lot in a society that we're in now where business and government seem to be the same exact entity in so many different ways. And people are just baffled as to what they can even do to against these humongous monolithic institutions. Yeah, and these were the same, I guess you could call them fears, that both Fromm and Huxley were expressing in those interviews back in the late 50s, you know, almost 60 years ago, like we were saying. And we've really ended up in that world. And so we have this illusion of freedom, but the way that people imagine social systems seems to be very limited on, on a larger level. And that takes us right back to where we were with Michelle and John today. And Michelle was putting out this idea of different kind of uh, regimes of how technology can be used. And he was talking about this netarchical capitalism that we live in now, where essentially this for-profit world that controls the internet. And I am personally really skeptical that we can avoid the dynamic that Aldous Huxley was just talking about, where the range of technologies that we develop basically require this larger organization in some way. And I'm optimistic that maybe we can figure out how to get past that, that we can figure out how to reorganize and transition away from those old exploitative relationships. But at the same time, every open project, every open source programming project relies on massive server farms and these kinds of big business mining extractions to put them in place. And it's really hard to imagine how that can go away entirely. And I know there's projects like looking at mesh networks and so on, and people working at the kind of long-term sustainability of computing infrastructure. Maybe I'm just stunted in imagination, but I can't really see how we get away from mining these rare earth materials that are depleting rapidly and require big businesses and big governments to regulate them to be able to produce them. I don't know. What do you think about that, Seth? It's really hard to get away from the fact that this large infrastructure has grown up in our society and has become so much a part of the way we even think about doing business, about what we think about our 
daily lives about these large infrastructure almost assumptions, Justin, because most of your daily life is in some way rotated around either the internet, electricity, running water, tra- some kind of mass transit, some sort of some sort of large governmental or business controlled infrastructure. These types of things are so very important in daily life because without them, you don't eat, you don't have clean drinking water, you don't even have a place to work, you don't have any way to get around. And these are the basic tenets of life. And taking these things out of people's hands, taking these large infrastructure projects away from people make them very, very upset. And so I think in envisioning a different way to use technology and the kinds of open society arrangements we were discussing in our in our podcast, we're really talking about what does the economy of a degrowth society look like? I think these kinds of projects that are doing like open farm tech and cargo bicycles of modular components, those are really exciting to me because those are technological developments that massively cut back on energy infrastructure can be scaled quickly and can be disseminated around the world with things like the internet. And a lot of people like to bash air travel for its carbon emission purposes, which is completely legitimate. But I was just reading an article the other day, and we'll link to this in our show notes, and it's an NPR story about energy for the cloud. And uh, the cloud takes a tremendous amount of electricity. And so every single day we use Dropbox, every single day we use Google search engines, we're using at least as much, if not more, greenhouse gases that are being emitted to, into the atmosphere through electricity generation than you know most people use in a year on their air travel. So it goes hand in hand. And imagining all of the kind of 24-7 electricity infrastructures that we have, they do come at a large cost to our environment. It's pretty wild that there's so much electricity that goes into making the internet work for us. It's a pretty pretty amazing. You don't even have to think about turning on the internet, plugging in your computer, turning on your, your router. But there's so much infrastructure that goes into the back end of this, moving all this data around, the, the amount of servers, the amount of hard drive space, the amount of just machinery running, electricity burning, and just to make it all work. It's an incredible business. And we don't have to think about it at all because we're just the consumers on the end of it. But the amount of data, I mean, just for this Skype conversation, to even have this podcast delivered to you, our faithful listeners out in the world, it's an incredible, incredible accomplishment. And the amount of electricity that makes it happen is mind-blowing. Yeah, it's really incredible. And so thinking about what the economy looks like in a degrowth society, countries like Japan, and we'll link to these stories in the show notes as well, are starting to really understand the end of growth in a critical way, whether it's their energy infrastructure or now government panels on looking at what's happening with fertility rates and being far under replacement. Here's an article called Stemming the Fall in Population from the Japan News, and it's about this government panel called the Committee for Japan's Future, which advises Japan's Council on Economic and Fiscal Policy, and they're setting a goal to maintain a population level of about 100 million people 50 years from now because they're trying to figure out how to pay for everything like pensions and older people. And based on their calculations with current demographic rates, Japan will start losing a million people a year in 2040. Did you say a million people? A million people a year. Japan's population will be decreasing by a million people a year as of 2040. And that's no catastrophe. That's no you know, meteor hitting the planet. That's no die-off, peak oil kind of thing. That's now, using our wow. numbers, extrapolating in the future. 
and countries are starting to freak out on how they're going to deal with it. Here's another article from Japan's land ministry. 62% of Japan will be uninhabited by 2050. Maybe that means the land prices will go down. (laughs) Well, you never know what it means, but uh, and how it will play out economically necessarily. But they're just taking today's demographic trends and trying to see what this means in the future. And that leads to other studies that conclude things like 50% of Japan's municipalities may disappear by 2040, you know? And how do you maintain a functioning economy in that kind of world? It's going to be some hybrid where we don't go back and live in caves and have no technology, but it's not going to be the same kinds of technology developments that we've been used to over the last 20 years. And so maybe society does end up shaping itself a lot like what we've been discussing today with Michelle Bowens and John Rostakis, because how do you grow your economy in the same way that governments are used to when potentially within the next few decades, a million people are going to be declining from your population every year. It just doesn't happen. And that's why we talk about the end of growth. And that's why we talk about alternatives to growth, because it's happening. Governments are starting to realize that the end is here, even if they don't understand the energy reasons why it's going to happen. They're understanding the demographic reasons. When you see your population just reducing and you see that your tax revenues is declining because you have nobody to replace the elders who are dying off, and you start scratching your head and saying, how are we going to be replacing all these people? You either have to start campaigns like Denmark does where you start giving people <laughs> yeah. time off and start paying for their, their babies to, be, to have uh, school and to have supplies for the first year of life. Or you, you, know, you give people days off like you do in Russia for, the, for, the, for procreation time. You know? yeah. <laughs> go, go, go home, take off time off of work and go have babies. That's what we're, we're reduced to these days. Yeah. And, and what we've got to do as you know, having uh, a podcast that some people listen to and what you have to do as, as listeners is help to tell the story that it's okay for the population to go down. And yes, that does mean the end to business as usual, but these kinds of government efforts where it's like, go out and procreate and have babies because we need to keep our economy growing, that is the worst thing that could happen. If the next 20 years we go out and try to get these kinds of crazy fertility programs off the ground to let people, you know, try to maintain the baby boom kind of rates of fertility or even that post baby boom, I think we have an opportunity to actually shrink the human population without a catastrophe. But I think a lot of governments, because they're stuck in that old mindset, are going to try to ramp it up in the same way. And that's really going to create a catastrophe if it happens. Imagining a world of the future is the responsibility of everyone living right now. It's not the responsibility of our great-great-grandchildren. It's the responsibility of those who have the wherewithal and the thought processes right now to dream of a future where we're all living in a world that is beneficial to all humans. And that's why we are very grateful for the opportunity to talk about these things and discuss them with you today on our podcast. And we're grateful for the listeners who have chipped in some cash to help us have the equipment to make a professional sounding podcast about these issues. This show would not be quality that it is without our fantastic donors who send in amazing donations to our show. And their hard-earned dollars go so very far in making this show a possibility. So big thanks to David out in Sweden. Thanks so very much for sending in 
your fantastic donation. And also thanks to a repeat donor to our show, Nancy, in Colorado. We greatly appreciate everyone who not only donates, but makes a point to donate on a regular basis. And these people who have donated will be receiving some of our fancy new extra environmentalist t-shirts. We're already seeing some of the first round that we recently sent out pop up on our Facebook page. People like our listener Paul posted a a photo of him out in his garden with the Extra Environmentalist t-shirt on. And we couldn't be happier to see the Extra Environmentalist out gardening because what better way to enjoy the beautiful springtime and summer and getting that garden ready for a fall harvest than wearing your Extra Environmentalist t-shirt out in it and getting it covered in dirt and sweat and what really gives you that feeling that you've put some seeds in the ground at the end of the day. And you can even listen to your favorite podcast while you do it. And boy, does Paul look good in that extra environmentalist (laughs) t-shirt. The black accentuated by the wonderful, beautiful flowers that are behind him. So if you've enjoyed this episode of The Extra Environmentalist, please go on and download a whole mess of episodes that we have all for free on our Extra Environmentalist website, which is www.extravironmentalist.com. We're also on iTunes where you can just type in Extra Environmentalist and automatically be connected to a humongous archive of episodes all for your downloading pleasure. If you like an episode on there, review it. Drop us a five-star review and we would be very happy to have that review. If you want to join the conversation, have an active role in the community, go on Facebook and talk to us. Leave a picture, drop an article, leave a comment. If you too would like to get a t-shirt like the ones that we talked about and or a fantastic sticker that you can place on an item of your choice, such as a computer, these things can be found over at The Extra Environmentalist by donating $30 or more. And you will be automatically put in line to receive one of the amazing t-shirts that have been covering the world and covering the bodies of many of our listeners. And listeners like Lauren in Eastern Connecticut. Hi, Justin and Seth. This is Lauren in Eastern Connecticut. And I had such a surprise in my mailbox today. I wasn't expecting that. I was, wasn't uh, not expecting that at all. And I wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'm just so psyched to have an extra environmentalist t-shirt. And I wanted to tell you that I really like this last... I haven't quite finished listening to the last episode yet because I'm still grokking the first hour. But you really helped me out there with uh, the ideas about the local investment because I was truly stumped about how that could actually happen and I was it was like a absolute light bulb went out in my head. So thank you again and keep on doing what you're doing and I just love you guys. Bye. That was good voicemail. That was a great voicemail. Lauren, thank you so much for sending in that voicemail. You can't even know what it feels like to hear such gratitude in your voice and to know that you really appreciate all the hard work that we're doing here on the show. A lot of exciting video projects are underway here at the Extra Environmentalist. We'll be broadcasting live from the New Economy Coalition Common Bound Conference, building a new economy that is equitable and sustainable from the ground up with no greenwashing broadcasting there from Boston, Massachusetts from the 6th through the 8th of June. We'll put some information about that on our website in the coming week or two, but you can also find out more at commonbound.org. And also we're working out the details to get you video 
from the International Degrowth Conference in Leipzig, Germany this year. So we are very excited to be able to take the kinds of discussions that are happening at places like the degrowth conference and put them forward for the world to be able to access. And that kind of thing is made possible through donations. And we're more than happy to be able to send little thank you gifts like a t-shirt off to our listeners. Enjoy those last few gasps of spring as the summer collides into your world and heats up your home. Enjoy the gardens, those fresh tomatoes and the green trees that are blooming everywhere. This is the Extra Environmentalist signing off. huge responsibility evolves upon people within the global culture to try and come to terms with what is possible and what is to be done. And I think we have to doubt everything that we're told. All the theology that we have inherited served a different kind of world. I mean, don't forget that as recently as a hundred years ago, People believed that the earth was created on September 15th, 4004 BC. I mean, the, the uh, steam engine was the most powerful form of technology that existed. In the last hundred years, we have gone more than half of the distance that we've traveled in the last 50,000 years. And you can actually begin to see the outlines of what it's all about. As caretakers of the earth, as caretakers of intelligence, because this is all the intelligence that we know of, uh, we need, we must, in fact, come to terms with what is being asked of us. What is it that we are uh, supposed to be doing? How can we rationally order our societies to maximize the values that we inherently and intrinsically feel to be worth saving? the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we are speaking with Jim Rickards, the author of The Death of Money, and Colin Kammerer of Caltech about his research into the creation mechanisms of bubbles. All the things that were dangerous in 2008 are more dangerous today 
And if you understand critical state dynamics, you understand that when you increase the scale of a system, scale is just a fancy word for size, when you increase the scale of a system, the risk goes up not in a linear way but in an exponential way. So if you triple the scale of the system, you're increasing the risk by a factor of 10 or, or 20 or more. The system is more dangerous and potentially unstable today when the next liquidity crisis comes. And it will come sooner than later. And what happens behaviorally is bubbles are common, not rare, but the size of the bubble and the duration does vary quite a bit. So our subject pool is college students. If you take 16 groups of 20 different people from the same group and we run these bubbles, you don't get the same exact pattern every time. The groups, it's just they kind of decide among themselves, oh, this is going to be a really big bubble and the peak is going to be 75 instead of 14. Or, well, this is going to be a small bubble. We're only going to go up to 23. Okay, children. Today for our class, we're watching a very important educational video, and I need you all to stay awake for it. Pay attention, but we're going to put this VHS tape here into the TV. Johnny, stop touching Sarah's shoulder. How many times have I told you? Don't touch her shoulder. All right, now pay attention. Today, we travel to the world of Majuristan, a world that became addicted to measuring things in the most bizarre way. Majuristan started on the premise of measuring the things that people did and used. In fact, these rulers were so straight, the rulers of Majuristan became the standard for the entire world. Initially, these rulers were made from things like oil and food and metal. I'm gonna plant this field full of wheat so I can make me some rulers. I'm gonna chop down this tree and make the best damn ruler there is. I just found a gold mine. Think about all the rulers we can make out of this. So many inches I can't even believe my eyes. Initially, the rulers were made from these things like food and wood and oil. Slowly, as more trees were chopped down, more oil wells were found, those resources became increasingly scarce. It became harder and harder to make the rulers that the rest of the world were using. And so, there was a very important meeting at the Central Bank of Majuristan. Attention, attention. We must now come to order in the issue of finding more resources for rulers. What options do we have? How will we make the rulers when we're not putting anything in the machines that create them anymore? How am I going to feed my children without any resources for the rulers? What are we going to do about it? We need rulers. We need them now. Settle down. Settle down. We need to figure out how to make rulers out of nothing because we have nothing to put into rulers. To answer these questions, we're going to look to our scientists. This guy has a PhD in something, so apparently he will know how to solve our problems. Well, uh, yeah, this seems like a problem, boys and girls. And after many hours of extensive observation and research, we have found that we can fart into a tube and use that as a ruler. Basically creating a ruler out of thin air. Thank God for science! Thanks to the amazing innovations of science, Measuristan was able to revolutionize the way that they made rulers. 
and everything kept humming along. Majuristan and its people became richer and richer, and everyone was happy. In fact, the whole system was so successful that more than half the economy became focused just on making rulers out of nothing, betting on what the rulers will look like in the future, and what they could potentially measure. Today, rulers became even more lucrative as his future soared. Looks like there's no stopping at the accelerating ruler. As the new economy of Majuristan continued to grow, scientists were hard at work at new innovations. <clears throat> Through our extensive research and scientific testing, it seems we have been able to innovate our way out of even using the ruler tube to hold the farts. Now, we can just use straight farts as rulers, making rulers literally out of nothing but hot air. The amazing innovations in ruler generation technology continued cascading for many decades more, until one very precarious day when a little boy began questioning where were these rulers actually coming from, and really, why were we using them? Daddy, why are we using rulers to measure things? Well, that, that's just what we've always used. If we don't use these rulers, we don't get food. Daddy, my ruler smells really bad. When I was your age, our rulers were only 20% farts. But now they're 110% farts. In fact, we have to fart twice as hard just to make some rulers. Now you go eat extra beans, because we're going to need extra rulers tonight. But that little boy's question had a resounding influence, more than he could ever know. Increasingly, people questioned, why did these rulers smell so bad? Why were they using them to get the basic things that they needed? And then, one day, as more and more people were questioning the validity of the measurements generated by these rulers, one particularly important ruler was divided into so many tiny divisions of inches that people couldn't read, even with the most powerful magnifying glass, the measurements on that ruler. And because of this, the economy disintegrated. <laughs> The end. Teacher, why did we watch that? That was a dumb movie. Now listen, children, the reason we watch that is it's a cautionary tale for why you should never question the things you use and always do what your parents tell you because that little boy's question ended up causing a catastrophe. So do what you're told now. Aww. All right, children, now it's time for our next lesson. We're going to talk about why cotton candy's fluffy. Open your textbooks to page five. Yay!